Good morning. Good morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore Baptist Church. Well, this morning I have some good news. This morning we're going to talk about idolatry. So you know what? That, that's going to be an easy one for us. So, you know, I'm not being you over the head with something challenging because idolatry, it's not really something we have to worry about in the 21st century. I, okay, maybe there's some people in some distant corners of the world who still worship idols, but no one who comes to a church on a Sunday morning practices idolatry. Because idolatry, you know, that's what primitive people use. It's what they turn to to fill their needs. It's where they go when they need comfort late at night. Idol worshipers, they spend their days obsessing over and searching for their gods. They wear outlandish costumes. They paint their bodies for rituals. They, <laughs> they, they spend all day reading or talking about their god with others. They gather for celebrations to worship their god with other cult members. You know, those who practice idolatry, they sacrifice everything for their God. They become consumed with trying to be the most committed, the most diligent, the most recognized. They want to be a perfect idol worshiper. They daydream about things that will probably never happen. And they invest their entire lives into pleasing their idol. In fact, their entire identity is wrapped up into the activities and the accomplishments of their God. So in the end, an idol worshiper, they're really just worshiping their own desires. And they really have nothing in common with us today. So, <laughs> so, so maybe that's right. And maybe idolatry isn't really relevant to us today. But you know what? We're, we're still going to talk about it. Because despite our objections we might have, it does appear in almost every book of the Bible. And in fact, I believe idolatry is probably the most important issue that we as humans deal with. And I think the man who fought the battle of Jericho would agree with us too. So if you're able, I ask you to please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. If you'd like to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on pages 129 and 130. And once you're there, I'd ask that if you're able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read portions from this chapter today. Joshua chapter 24, big 24. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump a bit later in the chapter. So Joshua 24, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1 says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates and Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Let's jump down to verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the Jordan or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Verse 16, the people answered, well, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of the slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve his voice. We will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone. He set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it is heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away every man to his inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great mercy, love, and grace that we see in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I know that I far too often turn away from you and turn toward my own idols. So in this moment, I ask you to work through me an imperfect vessel, but one saved by you, to declare your word and your truth. As another imperfect man, John the Baptist said, he wanted you to increase and him to decrease so that your message and your glory would be clear. God, may what we say here today lead us to turn away from idols toward you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've been here for the past six months or so, five, six months. For the very last time, let's talk about where we are in this particular book of Scripture. So we are in the book of Joshua. This is our last Sunday in this series going through this book. We've seen in this book how it's about God fulfilling His promise to His people, the Israelites. He had promised them a land of their own, and He's giving it to them in this book. God used a man named Moses. Moses led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in this book, he uses Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And God gave Joshua and the Israelites victory in many battles. After all the major armies of the Canaanites are defeated, the land had rest from war, and God's people are safe in the promised land. Now, we're not going to look at these verses today, but if you look at the very end of chapter 4, there's a couple verses that kind of emphasize this point that the people are safe in the land. Verses 29 through 33 end the book by talking about three burials. First, Joshua dies and is buried. 
Then they bury the bones of his ancestor Joseph, and then Eliezer, the high priest, also dies and is buried. And the point of this kind of strange ending is that the people of Israel are finally home. They can live, they can rest, they can die in the promised land. God had been faithful to his people, and he brought them home. However, most of this chapter takes place before that. This is years after the war is over. Joshua is very old. He knows he is about to die. And so he gives two final addresses, two final speeches to the people of Israel. Last week, you were here, we were in chapter 23, and we talked about Joshua's challenge to finish well. And in our chapter today, he's going to talk to all the people and explain what does finishing well look like practically. Verse 1 of our chapter tells us that just before his death, Joshua is gathering the Israelites, and he brings them to a place called Shechem. This is a picture of what it looks like in modern day. It's kind of a natural amphitheater. There's two mountains that kind of make a little V, and so in there, sound can travel really well. It's a good place for a large crowd of people to assemble. And so Joshua brings them there for this farewell address. He wants to remind them of what God has done, and he wants to issue them a challenge. And so with these facts in mind, let's consider three truths from Joshua's farewell address. First, Joshua says we must remember what God has done. We must remember what God has done. This is a theme he emphasized last week. It's very similar to the first point that we talked about last week. But here he's saying we must remember what God has done. I just stopped at verse 2. Now I'm going to read verse 2 through verse 13. So God will flesh out what it is he has done. Joshua said to all the people in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and there they served other gods. Then, God says, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with all I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, he arose and fought against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities 
that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God had promised Abraham, the founder of the Israelites, he had promised him that he would have a land of his own. And this is that promise fulfilled. God is speaking through Joshua to show the people what he has done. It's a speech that's kind of similar to how treaties were organized during that day between a ruler and his servants. This historical background is to prove that the history of Israel is not meaningless. I tried to emphasize it, but I hope you noticed how many times God used the word I when he was talking in those verses. Eighteen times God speaks of his action in these verses. He called Abraham from worshiping other gods. He gave him a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob took his family to Egypt, and once there, God sent Moses and Aaron. He used plagues to lead his people out of slavery. He parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross, and he drowned the Egyptian army. God gave his people victory over all who stood in their way. Amorites, Balak, his prophet Balaam, the guy who talked to a donkey. In all things, God blessed his people. And God's evaluation of Israel's history shows that every event was under his control. It all fit into his plan. And not only has God done all these things for his people, but not one of the things that he promised them had failed to come to pass. The land was finally theirs. As Joshua makes clear, this conquest would not have been successful without God's direct intervention. Just noticing, in, in, what was it, verse 12, it says, it was not by your sword or by your bow. And we've seen this throughout our study of the book. If you remember way back when we talked about chapters 3 and 4, the Lord held back the Jordan River miraculously so that his people could enter the promised land. In chapter 6, he brought down the walls of Jericho so they could conquer that city. In chapter 10, God caused the sun to stand still in the sky so they could have victory. He brought large hailstones down on their enemies. In fact, the hailstones killed more people than the soldiers did in that battle. In chapter 11, verse 20, God even determined the strategies of the enemy that led to their defeat. He says it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. In fact, there's only one battle that the Israelites fought by themselves in this book. You remember back in chapter 7, they greatly outnumbered the city of Ai, and so they went to that battle without God. And even though they greatly outnumbered their enemy, they still lost that one. All their victories were from the Lord. Now, the location of what's happening here is also pretty significant because this place Shechem, where they're gathering, it's the first place that Abraham stopped in the promised land. It was here that God promised him, first time, a land of his own. Genesis 12, 6 and 7 says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. That's really awesome because that means our passage here, Joshua 24, that is this fulfilled. Hundreds of years later, Joshua's audience is experiencing this promise of God coming true. 
Now, the Israelites had also been here before in this book of Joshua. Back in chapter 8, they have a very similar ceremony. They're commemorating their entrance into the land. We read that all Israel, the sojourner as well as the native born, they stood on opposite sides of the ark. They put the ark in that valley, and half of them were in front of the one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and half of them were in front of Mount Ebo. This is just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. They were there to pronounce God's blessing, to bless the people of Israel. And so now that the people have begun to settle down, their home in the land of Canaan, it's all the more important that they renew their commitment to the Lord, that they remember what he has done for them. Now, this book we've studied is the book of Joshua. And so it's named after a man who has a whole lot to do in the book. But it's interesting that these final words from Joshua, he uses not to talk about himself and his accomplishments, but he's pointing to the real main character of Israel's story. He wants them to remember what God has done. He must be the focus. We must never forget His sovereign intervention, what He does on our behalf. With these intro verses, Joshua is kind of asking the people, here is God, here is what He has done, so how will you respond? How will you remember His deeds? And I know what we talked about last week and this week, we'll get to some things that may seem harsh, may seem kind of demanding from God. But remember, these are the very last two chapters of this book. God's earned the right to tell us what he desires because this book is about his great faithfulness to his people. So Joshua asked the people, how will you remember what God has done? And if we look ahead to verses 26 and 27, we see one of the ways that the Israelites remembered. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone. He set it up. He set it upright under the tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us because it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. Joshua has set up a stone in this book multiple times. He's taking a physical object like a stone. He's designating it as a reminder of God's actions for his people. Now, this custom of setting up a stone, it's, it's kind of fallen out of favor in our day. But I do know of several Christians who do something similar. They set aside a physical reminder of how God has blessed them. And I know that some of you have heard this story, so forgive me if you've heard this. But one example that I always think of is a family, a missionary family I spent a night with in West Virginia. And in their dining room, they had a shelf. And on that shelf, they had little random things, little toys, little knickknacks. There didn't seem to be any order to them. But if you could ask them what it was, they would say, well, why don't you pick one? And for each little random object, they had a story about a time how God had blessed them. I think there was something like a paperclip. They're like, oh, that's a time God held our family together. We were going through this and this, but he held us close. There was a little toy that had high socks. And it's like, that reminds us of the time that there was a flood and God preserved us where we were from that flood. And so I've always remembered that great testimony, this physical objects they had to remind them of God's faithfulness and remind them of his blessings. Well, why are we starting here? Why are we talking about remembering what God has done? We're doing that because before we turn to the main emphasis of Joshua's speech, it's important for us to understand where he's coming from. Many people know the famous phrase that we read before the offering where Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
But the key is that did not just pop into Joshua's mind. God is right to demand service and worship based on everything that he has blessed us with. His grace and work on our behalf gives meaning to an otherwise meaningless existence. So God's not issuing these commands. He's not telling us to worship him instead of idols in some vacuum. He's taking the initiative. He's blessing us. He's working for us and then asking us to respond. So how will you respond? How will you remember what he has done? The way Joshua tells us to respond is that we must choose to worship God. We must choose to worship God. I'm just going to read verses 14 and 15. Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, you don't want him, well then choose this day whom you will serve. Choose the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river. Choose the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This service, this worship of the Lord, this is the ultimate reason why God gave these people the land of Canaan. Now that they had this promised land, the Israelites had a platform. They had a place where they could worship God. God gave them the land for a purpose. And so Joshua tells the people to fear, revere, honor, serve the Lord sincerely and faithfully. They should put away the gods that they worshiped before, that the people they came from worshiped. They must choose who they will serve. Pastor Warren Wearsby writes that to serve God here, what Joshua is talking about means to fear him, obey him, and worship only him. It means to love him, to fix your heart upon him, obeying him because you want to and not because you have to. Obeying God because we want to, not because we have to. Joshua is insisting the Israelites make this choice to worship the Lord who blessed them. Or he says, choose some other God. Let that God's worldview shape you. Well, for fairness, let's explore these other options. Who are these other gods that they could have chosen to worship? Well, although each had their own distinctives, all the nations around Israel practiced some form of idolatry. And the gods of their day represented things like agriculture, fertility, animals. They stood for some natural phenomenon like storms, rivers, and the sea. Among the Canaanites, the worship of these gods often included prostitution, and even in this picture over here, child sacrifice. But this was readily carried out because the worshipers were eager to receive blessings from their gods. And we might look back and say, that seems really foolish to us. But you have to remember, these gods represented forces, desires, and goals that were important to them. Storms changed whether you had food or not. You needed the ground to be fertile so you could survive. So the temptation to worship them would have been very strong. Now the people, despite this, in our text, verses 16 through 18, they remain loyal. They remain obedient to the Lord because they have seen his actions on their behalf. Now I want to point out that Joshua does not give the Israelites a none of the above option here. He says you can worship the Lord or you can pick one of these other gods around here. He assumed that they had to choose one. And that's a choice that we have to make as well. 
Years ago, there was a movie, The Avengers, and the villain Loki at one point, a crowd bows before him, and he says, is this not your natural state? He's implying that people are meant to be bowing down to something. Although he's the villain in the movie, he, he does have a point, because we all worship something. In fact, we're worshiping all the time. We're worshiping 24-7. And if the thing we're worshiping or submitting to is not God, then that thing is an idol. From the beginning, God created us to worship, and He desired that we would worship Him. He knew that serving Him would be the only way that we would be fulfilled. He loved us so much that He created us to have a relationship with Him. This relationship will be based on worship, loving service, and devotion to God. A document called the Westminster Confession of Faith has a catechism, questions that are supposed to be answered. And probably the most famous one is this. What is the chief end? What is the purpose of mankind, of, for men and women? Why do we exist? And the answer is that man and woman's chief end, our purpose, is to glorify God, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is why we are here. That is why God made us. But the first man did not choose to worship God. And through his sin, severed his relationship with the Lord, created this disorder in the world that we see around us known as the fall. However, even though that relationship is broken, humans still worship. They just now worship the wrong thing. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says this about people, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Having rejected the true God, God gave people over to their sinful desires and their foolish idolatry. In other words, we have rejected God's goodness to worship things that entice us, things that we desire, we fear, we trust, that we feel that we need. Every person serves, pursues, and sacrifices for something. And what a person pursues and values, that's that person's idol, his God. And as sinful human beings, we are very good at making gods to worship. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller has a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he borrows from a phrase of a man, John Calvin, that described the human heart as an idol factory. And then Tim Keller says this, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of, your ener- most of your passion and energy, most of your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. The thing we devote our passion and energy to, what we give our emotions and finances to, that is our idol. Therefore, any issue a person has really boils down to an idolatry issue. Any problem that you have comes from the idol that you are pursuing. Another pastor, Kyle Eidelman, said up at the top, idolatry is not an issue, it is the issue. And many people have written books about this or spoken about this, but I really enjoyed Pastor Eidelman's book, Gods at War, because what he's suggesting is that our choices reflect the idols or the gods that we are worshiping and serving. And so he encourages us to ask some questions, to figure out what are we serving, what are we worshiping instead of God. Here's the examples he gives. Ask yourself, what disappoints you? What do you complain about the most? Where do you make financial sacrifices? What worries you? 
Where is your sanctuary? What infuriates you? What are your dreams? The answer to those questions reveals who we are worshiping. And to answer that question, he kind of talks about some of these gods or idols in three general categories, pleasure, power, and love. One of these, he lists the gods of pleasure. And so he starts with God of food. And while that certainly includes overeating, like gluttony, it also would include the other extreme. If we make diet, health foods, exercise, our physical condition, if that is our primary obsession in life. In other words, to worship the God of food means making how we view food the most important thing in our life. Do we eat food just because it makes us feel good? Do we make all our decisions based on what will make our bodies look better? Maybe, like I'm sometimes tempted to, we turn to a late-night snack as a source of comfort after a long day rather than relying on the Lord. Another God of pleasure would be the God of sex. And that would be demonstrated in being caught up in sexual sin or thinking about sex all the time. Perhaps you serve the God of entertainment. Do you find your identity, your sole identity, your purpose in cheering for your favorite sports team or following sports 24-7? Maybe you're passionate about celebrity gossip or talk shows, and that adds meaning to your life. Do you take your greatest amount of pride in completing the latest video game? Perhaps listening to particular music is your greatest source of joy. Has the internet allowed you to fill your hours moving from one source of entertainment to another? Perhaps, like me, you've maybe found yourself planning your life around the next ball game or when the next movie or TV show you want to see comes out. Eidelman then talks about gods of power, like success, money, and achievement. He asks questions like, are you driven and ambitious? So much so to the point that winning an award, winning that championship, getting that promotion, getting that recognition, that is your greatest source of joy. Are you envious when other people succeed when you fail? Are you driven to accomplish your own goals above everything else? Do you pursue money to the expense of everyone else in your life? Do you dream of the day when you will finally arrive at that place of riches you desire? Is it your greatest dream to win the lottery? When we talk about giving to church and God's purpose, is your question, well, how much do I have to give? Or is it how much can I give? Do you believe that hard work, pride in your accomplishments, that's more important than showing grace and mercy? Is your life driven by to-do list and checklist? or literal or figurative merit badges, praise from others. Perhaps, like me, maybe you find some of your greatest pride in your own ability to get things done by yourself. And lastly, Eidelman describes the dangerous gods of love. Maybe you worship the god of romance. You long for the day when your prince will come or you'll meet that special someone. Maybe You're married and you still worship this God because the one you thought would complete you has disappointed you. You wouldn't call what you have happily ever after, and that drains your joy every day. Maybe you make your spouse your primary obsession, and whether they're happy or sad, that determines whether you have a good or bad day. Maybe your frustration leads you to turn to adultery, whether real or just imagined. Maybe you turn to porn or to romance novels or movies to fill your void for felt romantic needs. It could also be that family 
has become your God and idol? Does your life completely revolve around your spouse, children, other family members? Is your goal in life to please your family? Do your family members' feelings determine your own? Is your greatest fear that your family won't live up to your expectations for them? Perhaps like me, you're tempted to turn to loved ones for comfort and help before I turn to God. Eidelman describes one more God of love, but I'm going to wait to get to him for a moment. I hope you notice, though, as we talked through these, I tried to use absolute terms. Talked about our greatest source of joy, most, all, completely, our ultimate source of significance. Because these things I've described, most of them are not immoral in and of themselves. There's nothing immoral wrong about family, about romance, about food, sex, or entertainment, or even success, money, and achievement. There's nothing evil in those things. They are a part of the blessing of God's creation. But when any of them becomes the most important thing in your life, then they become idols. Jesus recognized this conflict between idolatry and God. He says this in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Only one person, place, only one thing can be first in our lives. And either God is first or some kind of idol is. And the sad reality is none of these gods can completely satisfy us because all of us are really worshiping the last God of love. We're all really worshiping the God of me. And our sin will never be satisfied. The God of me is the one who's ultimately at war with the God of the universe. All these other gods, idols I described, they're really just parts of this true enemy, our own sin within us. When we recognize that we're not God, we choose to please ourselves and seek our own interests, our own wishes, our own dreams and desires. But the truth is that the God of me will always fail to give us the wholeness we crave. Instead, it will produce sin, discouragement, and a lack of purpose. The gods of pleasure we talked about, if we seek them, will only end up empty, ashamed, lonely, and bored. The gods of power will just produce arrogance, insecurity, and uncertainty. And those gods of love will lead us disappointed, broken, and unloved. They promised us freedom and joy. If you do these things, we'll feel better. But it was a false freedom of slavery to our own sin. None of these forms of the God of me really satisfies. Now you might say, Pastor, this seems like a little obsessive because a little much, because that means anything could be a God. Absolutely anything could be an idol. And that's the point. Yes, anything can. If it takes the place of God in your heart, it is your idol. As great as things like love and family is, only God can be our ultimate source of satisfaction, contentment, and joy. As Joshua is telling the people, we too must decide, will we worship ourselves? Will we worship our own interests, our own gods of pleasure, power, and love? Or are we going to make the Lord our source of satisfaction and contentment? Like these Israelites of old, we need to dethrone the idols in our lives, return God to his proper place. However, there's a problem. And that problem is the third truth in our passage. Joshua says we cannot choose to worship God. And what are you talking about, pastor? You just went through that whole thing of list of gods. What do you mean we cannot choose 
to worship God. Well, I'm not making this up. Look what Joshua says in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. They gave him the answer they wanted. They chose God rather than those others, but Joshua knew their fickle hearts. Joshua knew the tendency that the Israelites and all of us have to say the right thing, but then to later go and do something else. And he warned them it would not be enough to say that they would worship the Lord. They must also go and do it. Joshua says that God is a jealous God. He doesn't mean in a petty, immature, teenager type of way. He means with a holy zeal for his people, like a husband's love for his wife. A violation of that love would be adultery. If the Israelites fail, Joshua warns them in verse 20, they will experience God's discipline. They will experience his just wrath for breaking their word. Still, the people vow to serve the Lord. Multiple times, Joshua asks them. Multiple times, they say they will. They say, we are witnesses. It will be on us. It kind of, if you know Bible, sounded to me like the crowd before Pilate when Jesus is dying. Let it be on us. We will do it. We will do it. So Joshua completes the ceremony. We talked about it. He sets up a stone, a reminder of the promise the people have made. We also talked about last week, though, that despite these promises... Despite all the faithfulness that we see in this book, the Israelites would fail to worship God. In fact, all the rest of the Old Testament from this point is basically painful illustration after painful illustration of the Israelites' failure to worship the Lord. Instead of being a distinct, unique people of God, Israel began to resemble the other nations that were around her. Joshua even kind of sees this. He suggests twice in this chapter that they're still worshiping other gods even then. Did you catch it? In verse 14, he says, put away the gods your father served. Then in verse 23, he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. God is doing all these great things and they can see it, yet they still have these idols that they are worshiping. And it is to those idols and to new ones that the Israelites would turn to. In this passage, Joshua is recognizing a truth the Apostle Paul would write over a thousand years later. Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he's also realizing what Paul says later in Romans, in chapter 7, I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Joshua and Paul, they both know that even if the people wanted to worship God, they would still ultimately worship idols. Humans will always fail to worship God because he doesn't want to be first among many. He wants to be our one and only. So out of his great love, he had to take the initiative to solve this problem, to save humanity. He had to replace our cold hearts of stone with a living heart of flesh that's able to serve him. In the book of Ezekiel, he promised this. He says, I will give my people a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that dead heart of stone from your flesh and give you a living heart of flesh. He accomplished that plan by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to take the penalty of our sin, to restore us to a right relationship with God. Having a right relationship means that we have God's Spirit living in us. We can depend on Him to serve and worship the Lord. 
this message, or you might call it this gospel, is true for every idol worshiper, and that, that includes every one of us. It means that Christianity is not a checklist. We do not earn our way there. Things like practicing the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law, obeying what Jesus says, those are great goals. But if we are trying to just do them, we will ultimately fail. In the book of James, we read that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And even if that weren't true, even if we could hypothetically do everything, well, then we're right back to worshiping that God of me because we'd have pride in our own accomplishment. So despite what people say, on your own, you cannot change yourself. Things like having an accountability partner or or maybe an accountability group, having a prayer chain, someone to call, email reminders, a computer block, a 12-step program, a Bible study plan, having Christian friends, those are all great. We should pursue those things, absolutely. But without reliance and dependence on Christ, any of those things are completely worthless. They have no power without Him. Now, in our human nature, we want to focus on those outside actions. If I just did this and this, then those problems would be solved. But Jesus, He desires to change our hearts, to change us from the inside out, change our whole being. If you do not settle that heart issue, that trust in Jesus alone to change you, then nothing is going to change. If you claim to worship God without being surrendered to Christ, you're just like the Israelites. And just like their claims, yours will be proved to be null and void. The only solution to our idolatry issue, the only end to our suffering, is a relationship with Christ. Because without a relationship with Him, we cannot worship Him the way God intended. But if we repent, if we turn from the sin of idolatry, if we place our trust in Jesus, well then we can enter into a relationship with this only God who can truly satisfy us and bring us eternal joy, the only God who never disappoints. And I'm not just talking to non-Christians here, because for a believer, our dependence on Christ affects us every second of every day. Without His power given by His Spirit, it's impossible for us to claim victory over the gods or idols that we are tempted to worship, that we battle with every day. We certainly need Christ for salvation from sin, but we also need Him for victory in our daily struggles. Nothing we do is by our own effort. When we reach heaven, anything we have to say about what we have done, anything we have to say about what our lives have accomplished, anything we have to say about our hope, will all come back to Christ and Christ alone. It's only when we consistently recognize and honor Him as the source of everything that we need, only then will we be worshiping God the way that He had intended. So here at the end of Joshua, the end of this book that we have spent several months in, Joshua is telling us we must remember what God has done for us. And in light of that knowledge, we must choose to turn away from idols and worship Him. But we can't do that on our own, and the only way we can choose Him is through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. So because of what God has done, He expects a response from us. And what will yours be? There's really only two responses that you can have. Today and the rest of your life, you can either worship your idols or you can worship God. 
You can turn away from God. You can continue to pursue your selfish dreams, desires, your fantasies, ambitions, goals. No one will force you to worship God. But I have to warn you that if you live to please yourself, you will never find true satisfaction. You can sing the words of our songs. You can act like a Christian. But if something is more important to you than Jesus Christ, you are worshiping an idol. And the other option, though, is to turn from those idols toward God, recognizing that you can never come to Him by your own effort, but only through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that's an option you want, oh, then, then talk to me about it, and I'd love to tell you more about having a relationship with Him. Or talk to someone you know who knows Christ about how you can know Him and worship Him the way He desires through faith and trust in Jesus. Now, if you're here, you're a genuine believer in Jesus, but you found yourself returning again and again to some old idols, well, then use this time now to repent, to turn from that sin. Renew your commitment to depend on Christ and on Christ alone for your standing before God. We're about to sing a song. Use that song as an expression of your thankfulness for what God has done for you. The choice today is yours. Will you worship yourself and your idols, or will you worship God? And my prayer for all of us is that we would choose to worship Him, because He alone is worthy.